1 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll be looking at the entire chapter, so I'll read verses 1 through 13. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it was, is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Many, many years ago, there was a hit pop song by the Hollies called, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. The lyrics went like this, The road is long, with many a winding turn that leads us to who knows where, who knows when. But I'm strong, strong enough to carry him. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. So on we go, his welfare is of my concern. No burden is he to bear, we'll get there, for I know he would not encumber me. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. Now if you've been around a while, you may remember that song. It was a big hit for the Hollies. But you may not know that the inspiration for that song was actually a story that was told by a Scottish Presbyterian preacher back in the late 1800s. The story, as he told it, goes like this. One day he was walking down the street, and he saw a very young girl, maybe five or six years old, struggling to carry a huge baby boy who was about half as big as she was. And the preacher stopped and smiled at her and said, Isn't he too heavy for you? And the little girl seemed surprised by the question and said, Nah, he ain't heavy. He's my brother. That is a profoundly Christian concept. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It is interesting that Paul summarizes our responsibility, the purpose of our salvation, as being 
to bear one another's burdens, to serve one another. We were saved in order to carry our brother or our sister. We tend to think of this bearing one another's burdens as helping one another with financial or material or physical needs. Or we may think of it as helping them in their emotional needs, coming alongside them, grieving, weeping with those who weep, grieving with those who grieve. But here in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul takes it a step further, a step deeper. He says that our responsibilities to each other not only go to our physical needs, financial needs, material needs, or our emotional needs, it goes all the way to our spiritual needs. That we have a responsibility to bear one another's burdens in terms of our spiritual needs before God. There's a lot of debate these days about what our responsibility is to each other out there in the public marketplace. A lot of debate. What are our personal freedoms and to what degree should we be allowed to pursue our personal freedoms? Should we offend other people and how should we handle the fact when we inevitably offend other people? Should there be safe places where we are safe from being offended? What is our responsibility to one another? Well, a lot of good questions out there in the culture, but in the church there should be no question because the word of God spells out clearly our responsibilities to one another. Here, Paul introduces a radical concept for our context and also for the context of the church in Corinth in the first century. The idea of us being responsible for the wounding of a brother or sister's conscience. Us being responsible for the wounding of a brother or sister's conscience. In verse 12, Paul calls this wounding of another's conscience not just a sin against that Christian brother or sister, but it's a sin against Christ, he said. It's as though you're doing it to Christ himself. He who treats the least of these in any way treats me that way. How we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ is how we treat Christ. It's a serious matter. In 1 Corinthians, we've seen that Paul is writing a letter to a church in Corinth, which, is modern, which was in modern-day Greece in the Roman Empire in the first century, and he's answering a bunch of questions. And every few chapters, every couple of chapters, two or three chapters, he'll switch topics. And you have to realize that sometimes we're hitting the reset button. Often when you're preaching through a book of the Bible like Romans or Galatians, you're building upon the passage we studied the week before. But in 1 Corinthians, sometimes you start... Like at the beginning of a chapter, you're on a whole new topic, and that's where we are in chapter 8. Paul has been responding to questions that the church in Corinth had sent to him, some hot-button issues, some controversial topics, some things they were wrestling with in their discipleship. And so the first few chapters, he dealt with the issue of divisions in the church, particularly related to the different leaders in the church. And then he talked in the next couple of chapters about worldly wisdom and God's wisdom and how we try to keep the worldly wisdom from corrupting the wisdom of God in the church. And then the last few chapters we've been looking at for a couple of months have dealt with issues of sexual immorality and singleness and marriage and our calling before God. Well, here at the beginning of chapter 8, he's switching topics again because he's addressing a new question. Again, this is a question that was sent to him by the church in Corinth, something they were wrestling with. And he describes the issue in verse 1. He says, now concerning 
food offered to idols. Now, don't tune me out from this point on, because I'm sure the first thing you think is, well, that's not really an issue in my life. I don't have to deal with that in my day-to-day life, whether I'm eating food that's been offered to idols or not. But I think you'll see in a hurry that it actually deals very directly with things we deal with every day. It's very difficult for us in these secularized Western cultures that we come from, most of us, to understand how difficult the transition was from living in the world in Corinth in the first century in the Roman Empire in that Greek culture, making the transition from that pagan culture into the culture of the church. There were issues they had to face that we don't have to face nearly to the same degree. And particularly in relation to idolatry. We don't know what it's like in America to try to come out of a worldly culture that is permeated with idolatry. Well, at least not on the surface. Maybe somebody who comes to Christ and comes into the kingdom of God in a country like India would understand better what Paul is talking about here. A place where there are many gods and there's lots of superstitions related to the gods and it touches on almost every aspect of life, every day of life. Or maybe in a tribal culture in Africa where these superstitions and spiritual beings are supposedly all around and affect every aspect of life. That's what it was like in first century Corinth. It was an idolatrous culture. Idolatry was everywhere. Prayers, rituals, sacrifices to the gods. This was part of the warp and woof of every day of life. And the issue that Paul zeroes in here, and obviously the question that they were asking him, was about animal sacrifices. In particular, what about the meat that was being eaten by people in the culture that had originally been offered as a sacrifice in the pagan temple before an idol to a false god. Is it all right to eat that meat? Is it all right to eat it in one context, but not all right to eat it in a different context? Of course, animal sacrifice, you have to understand, when you read about animal sacrifices, and particularly in this context in Corinth, a lot of it would sound very similar to what we see of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament that were instituted by God, according to God's word, by the Jewish priests, where they would offer sacrifices in the true temple to the true God. But the difference is that these sacrifices were not looking forward to a great coming sacrifice who would provide atonement and redemption for the people of God. The pagan sacrifices were works done to please the gods. They were... You know, how often is that? With it, false religion is just a corruption of elements of the true religion. Where in the Old Testament you had sacrifices that look forward to the, the sacrifice, the suffering servant, the Messiah. In man-made religion, sacrifices were sacrifices made by us. Things that we give up in order to appease the gods or to please the gods or to gain favor from the gods. That's the kind of sacrifices that were going on in the pagan temples. A demonic counterfeit of the Old Testament sacrifices that pointed to Christ, all part of a works religion. Well, what would happen, and again, it it would look similar to what would happen in the Old Testament temple. A pagan would bring their animal, offer it for a sacrifice in the pagan temple, and the, the, the pagan priest would take the animal, he would kill the animal, 
he would burn part of the carcass on the altar in the pagan temple to appease the gods or to gain the favor of the gods. And then part of the meat he would take for himself and the other priests. And maybe part of the meat would go back to the family for them to take home and to, to eat and to consume in their normal home life. And if there's anything left over, they would take the rest of that meat and they'd take it out to the marketplace and they would sell it to raise money. And so this meat, it was primarily for the pagan worship, but a lot of that meat came out into the regular life of the people, eaten in their homes or in their friends' homes or in feasts. They would have feasts at the temple. There were big social gatherings that everybody was expected to come to. And so meat that was left over from the sacrifices, they'd offer it and they'd provide this big meal at the pagan temple. This was just normal life. And so for the Christian, you can understand the dilemma that these new believers coming out of that culture, that pagan, idol-filled culture, coming into the church, they're trying to say, how should I live as a Christian? The word of God tells me to separate from the world and to put away idolatry and to put away false gods and to serve the true God and his son, Jesus Christ. I'm attempting to live that life. But what am I supposed to do with this meat that has been offered to an idol? Can I go to those feasts in the pagan temple those social feasts after the sacrifice is over? Can I sit at that table and eat the meat there in the temple? Can I go to my neighbor's house if he's offering a meal, and if he offers some of that meat to me as part of his meal and hospitality, am I, is it okay to meet, eat that meat in a neighbor's house? Or can I even buy that meat in the marketplace and take it home and feed it to my own family in my own house? It was a bigger dilemma for a first century Christian than it was for Dr. Seuss's characters to deal with green eggs and ham. Can you eat it in a house? Can you eat it with a mouse? Can you eat it with a fox? Can you eat it in a box? You know, those are the questions. These are questions they're wrestling with. Where can I eat this meat? But I want you to understand that coming out of that culture, to not eat the meat at all would be a huge social sacrifice. They'd be cutting themselves off from the life and culture of Corinth. And they understood that to separate from sin and to separate from idolatry meant making sacrifices. But it didn't mean that sacrifice. Well, what was happening is that some of the Christians in Corinth were not only saying it's okay to buy the meat in the marketplace and take it home and eat it. It's not only okay to go to your neighbor's house and eat that same meat if it's offered to you in a meal there. They were actually, even it appears, going to the feasts at the te pagan temples and taking part in the social feasts after the worship services were over in the pagan temples, and participating fully in the eating of meat in every social context. And not only that, it appears that they were pressuring the Christians, those that were newer to the faith, that were newer to the kingdom of God and have just come out of the idolatrous culture, they're pressuring them to, to live as they lived, and probably even scoffing at them and mocking them for not seizing their freedom in Christ to eat the meat that had been offered to idols. Well, Paul's going to deal with whether they should have been eating the meat in the pagan temple or not. We'll get to that in chapter 10. These next few chapters deal with separation in general, but Paul will get back to that in chapter 10. Here, he wants to deal with the issue of eating the meat at all. And what's interesting to me is that Paul doesn't do what I probably would have done. He's addressing this letter to the Corinthian church. You know what I would have done? I would have said to these Christians coming out of this idolatrous culture who had what he's calling the weaker brothers, the ones who are wrestling with this. I'd say, hey, let me lead you in a Bible study here. You need to study your Bible more. You need to learn your theology better. 
so that you won't be so troubled by this issue, so you'll be able to make good decisions. That's what I would have done. But Paul doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't address the weaker brother in this chapter. He addresses the one who would call himself the stronger brother, and he rebukes him. And I think there's a lesson for us to learn in this. Paul addresses the ones who knew their Bibles better. He addresses the ones whose theology was more complete. The stronger brother, that's what we've called him, but actually as I studied this passage, I'm not sure that's the right title. Because there's nowhere in chapter 8 that he refers to these people as the stronger brother or the stronger sister. He does talk about a weaker brother, but I think the better title for the person he's addressing is the more knowledgeable brother or the more knowledgeable sister. Whether they're really stronger in the sight of God or more mature in the sight of God, it will come to in a moment. Paul quotes them, I think, and rightly, I think, in the ESV, they add the quote marks. The original Greek doesn't have quotes, but adds quotes around the phrase, all of us possess knowledge. What Paul's doing there is he's quoting what they had said to him in the questions that they sent. Obviously, the, 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 the more knowledgeable brothers and sisters were asking, hey, we all know better on this issue of eating meat offered to idols, don't we? We all of us possess knowledge. We've studied the scriptures longer than these brothers and sisters who are struggling with this issue. We know our theology better. We all have knowledge. And it's interesting that if you skip down a few verses, down to verses 4 through 6, Paul takes some time to affirm their biblical knowledge and to affirm their theology. He says, you know, he quotes them and says, you're right, an idol has no real existence. And you're right, there is no God but one. Paul affirms what the Old Testament clearly teaches. Even though unbelievers, pagans, people outside the Old Testament church, even though they worship gods, they call upon gods, they look to gods, there are no other gods besides God. Our God, the creator God, Yahweh. He's the only God. There are no other gods that exist. Remember Isaiah 44, brilliant chapter on idolatry, where the Lord God says, to Isaiah, this is, this is a quote, he says, Thus says the Lord, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. And then, interestingly, God himself goes on to mock those who would worship idols. He describes a man who cuts down a tree. And he cuts up that tree that he's just cut down, and part of that tree he'll take and he'll carefully carve and shape into the form of an idol. And then he bows down to it, and he says to that idol, Deliver me, for you are my God. Then he turns around and takes some of the rest of the tree that he's just cut down, those other parts of the tree, and he cuts it up as firewood and he bakes his supper with it. And he says, how silly is it to worship one part of the tree as a god and to use the other part of the tree to make your supper? But it's interesting, having affirmed that, God does, or Paul says in verse 5, although there may be so-called gods in heaven or earth, as indeed, there are many gods and many lords. What's he saying there? It almost sounds like he's backtracking a little bit. There are no other gods. There is only one God. But yet, you know, there's a sense in which there are other presences out there, I think is what he's saying. And we won't really fully understand the illusion he's making here until we get to chapter 10. But let me give you a little spoiler here, or maybe a little preview. Over in chapter 10, in verses 19 and 20, this is what Paul says to them. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? 
No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. That's an ominous thing that he says about idolatry. When you think of other cultures, like Hindu culture, where they do believe and worship other gods, there is no reality. There are no other gods but God, but there are spiritual presences behind idolatry and their demonic presences. It's the worship of demons. If God would pull back the curtains and let us see that supernatural realm for just a minute, you would see that behind every idol is a demon seeking to destroy that person. That's what Paul will say. But here, he is just wanting to affirm the fact that their theology is correct. Matter of fact, in verse 6, Paul gives a, a very profound and concise statement of Trinitarian doctrine and theology. He says there is one God, God the Father, God the Son. There's one God. You get the Trinity there alluded to, even though he doesn't mention the Spirit in that verse. And this one God is creator, provider, sustainer, and Lord of all. And so, again, he's very strongly saying, you have it right. Your theology is correct. You have studied your scriptures well. Your knowledge is commendable, you more knowledgeable brother. And so, based on that good theology, the knowledgeable brother and sister asserts his freedom. The meat is a gift from God. That's what Paul taught later. Everything good comes from God. The meat itself is a good gift from God. Vegetarians must have a real problem with 1 Corinthians 8. Because he strongly affirms that eating meat is fine. That meat itself is a gift from God. But, and he also says, you know, since other gods don't exist, you don't have to worry about gods doing anything, zapping or making this meat somehow glow with idolatry. There's no lasting impact on the meat itself. Just enjoy the meat as you forsake the false gods. And Paul will affirm their theology in verse 8. He says, food will not commend us to God. Literally in the Greek, it says, food does not make us nearer to God. You're not nearer to God if you eat the food. You're not farther away from God if you don't eat the food. It's not about the food. So Paul's affirming that. Over in Romans 14, if you want to understand 1 Corinthians 8, you have to study it alongside of Romans 14 because it deals with a very similar issue there. But in Romans 14, in that parallel passage in verse 17, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Praise God it isn't. Aren't you glad you're not part of one of those religions where it's all about eating and drinking and rituals and cutting this off and growing that out and whatever it is that, that, that makes you acceptable to God? We're not, that's not what the true kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says. So again, Paul's saying, your knowledge of the scriptures is commendable. Your theology is impeccable. But your heart is wrong. Your heart is wrong. That's the point of this passage. Your focus should not be on getting all your theological T's crossed and I's dotted. That's not your ultimate focus, although that's a very good thing. Your ultimate focus is what you were saved for, which is to bear one another's burdens, to love, to love God and to love your brother. And so then Paul says, and he basically, again, he doesn't address the weaker brother, but he tries to help the stronger, quote-unquote stronger, the more knowledgeable brother or sister to understand the weaker brother or sister. Look at verse 7. 
However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. He's saying to these more knowledgeable brothers and sisters, he's saying, understand, they are new to the faith. They're just in the midst of this transition from darkness to light. They're in process. They're growing, but they don't understand everything. And their conscience is weak, and it's easily wounded. The Bible teaches us that God gives us our consciences as a gift. And the Bible teaches us that the conscience is the law of God written on the heart. It's something that every human being created in the image of God has, whether they acknowledge it as coming from God or not. We all, saved or unsaved, we all have the law of God written on the heart, which is this vague sense of what's right and wrong. Praise God we have consciences. Can you imagine what this world would be like if human beings didn't have a conscience? You don't know total depravity in this world. You want to know total depravity, take the conscience away. That's a restraint upon wickedness that God has given us in his common grace. But the problem is, sin has corrupted our consciences. Sin has limited our consciences. Our consciences need to be born again. Our consciences need to be regenerated. They need to be given life. They need to be given the wisdom of the word of God. They need the Holy Spirit to train and teach and build up our consciences so that they become reliable and trustworthy guides for decision-making. And so Paul is saying to these more knowledgeable brothers, just understand where this weaker brother is. His conscience is weak. His conscience is still greatly confused. You were there at one time. Be patient with your brother and be careful not to wound his fragile conscience. We are all in process. And any of us that have made progress in our knowledge and understanding and the training of our consciences, we need to praise God for his grace because that's what he's done in us. And to be patient with our brothers and sisters who haven't been brought as far by grace as we have been brought. In verse 10, Paul pictures the weaker brother walking by a pagan temple where one of these feasts after the service is going on. And he sees a Christian brother or sister sitting at the table eating this meat that had just recently been offered to an idol. He sees them eating it as part of the feast. And his conscience is deeply troubled. He thinks it's wrong, or at least he's, he's not sure whether it's right or wrong. And how can this more knowledgeable brother or sister be doing something that he doesn't feel right about doing? Imagine if you were raised in a Hindu family. And then you came to know Jesus Christ by his grace. And then you went and drove by, walked by the, 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 the McDonald's, and you saw your more knowledgeable, more supposedly mature brother or sister in Christ sitting there eating a Big Mac. It would trouble you. I'm not sure that's right or not. But what if he said, hey, hey brother, come on in, have a seat. Let me buy you a Big Mac. And you're sitting there wrestling, should I eat this hamburger or shouldn't I? I'm not sure. And so you say to your brother or sister, I don't, I'm not sure this is right. I mean, I'm trying to learn about all this Christian stuff, but I'm just not sure about this. I'm not, I don't know if it's right or for me to do or not. And what if the stronger brother or sister starts to make fun of it? So, oh, come on, grow up. 
Stop living like an idolater. Come on. This is what we Christians do. And so even though there's great doubt in your heart, you start to eat the hamburger, but you feel that you've sinned. What's interesting is that Paul says here, and also in Romans 14, is if you do it, not because you love God and love your brother and to the glory of God, but do it because your Christian brother or sister is putting pressure on you or setting an example for you. You're, not, you're doing it out of questionable motives. You actually are sinning. Even though it's okay to eat a hamburger in the sight of God, food's not going to make you closer to God or make you farther away from him, you're not sure whether it's right or not. The reasons why you're eating the hamburger are sinful reasons, even though the actual action itself is objectively allowable in the kingdom of God. That's what Paul's dealing with here. He's saying that we need to be very sensitive to our brothers and sisters because our purpose is to serve them, not to assert our rights and our freedoms. Before I became a Christian, I was a teenager when I came to know the Lord, and for many years before that, I had become passionate about music. I have always had an inordinate love for music. Sometimes it can be idolatry to me at times. But in my love for music, particularly rock and roll music, that was something that I had to really wrestle with when I came to know the Lord. I had some Christians in my ear that said that all rock music was of the devil and that to be a Christian, I needed to go burn all my albums and never have anything to do with it and listen to Southern Gospel for the rest of my life. Some people were worried about being, you know, when they became Christians, becoming missionaries to, to Africa. I was worried about having to listen to Southern Gospel my whole life. <laughs> but you see, I was wrestling with association. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll is a culture. And at that time, as a new believer, and for many years, I really wrestled with, was I sinning when I listened to this music for my old lifestyle? And it took me years of God's spirit and God's word patiently working with me to teach me discernment so that I could begin to separate what is the good gift of God in music and all styles of music that are legitimate forms of music are gifts from God. I'm so thankful the church has figured that out after all these decades, that music is a gift from God and that what Satan does is he corrupts and distorts it that the sin is in the content of the lyrics and in the lifestyle of those who sing the lyrics, but the sin is not in the gift itself. But it took me years as someone who passionately loved music to be able to separate and discern what is the gift from God and what is the sin. And I had lots of Christian brothers and sisters that both had good impacts on me during that time but also had very detrimental impacts upon me, either trying to lead me back into listening when I shouldn't have been listening because I hadn't what my conscience wasn't able to handle it or those who condemn me for listening for all the wrong reasons it's a very similar issue to what these Christians are wrestling with they wanted to serve God they were confused about what that meant and they didn't want to sin and their desire not to sin was right but their conscience needed to be educated but again, Paul isn't addressing the weaker brother. He's addressing the more knowledgeable brother. He's saying, you need to help your brother. Stop trying to assert your freedom and help your brother. Help him to get from where he is to where he needs to be. That's your responsibility. Now let me give you a couple caveats here. I don't have time to, to really expand upon this, but let me just be clear to say this. The weaker brother that Paul's referring to here isn't every Christian 
whose boundaries are narrower than the commandments of God. Let me say that again. The weaker brother is not every Christian whose boundaries for behavior are narrower than the kingdom of God. In other words, what I'm saying is, it's not, the weaker brother is not the unteachable, legalistic, judgmental brother who seeks to bind the consciences of other Christians with man-made rules and traditions. We don't call that the weaker brother in the church. We call that a Pharisee. Having said that, the more knowledgeable brother is not the Christian whose boundaries are wider than the commandments of God. In other words, you may have the freedom, according to the teaching of the word of God, to drink alcohol. And you may enjoy that freedom as long as you're sensitive to the weaker brothers around you and how your actions and words are affecting them in their weak consciences. But you're not free to get drunk. You're not free to go outside the boundaries of God's law. That's not being the stronger, more mature brother. That's being a sinner. Paul doesn't tell the weaker brother to grow up and study the scriptures and get his theology correct. That's what I would do if I were in Paul's shoes. He's gonna, he would do that. I'm not saying he wouldn't do that. I think when he gets to the weaker brother, he would want to teach him and help him discern and help him to grow out of gentleness and love, like, like the Lord Jesus Christ comes alongside us as our good shepherd, not wanting to, to quench the wick, not wanting to, to break the, 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 the weak plant. He, he very gently would want to take the weaker brother and lead them and take them in process and lead them to a greater understanding of scripture and doctrine so that their conscience becomes well-educated, so that they can make good decisions for life. That's what Paul would do, but he's not addressing that weaker brother in this passage. He doesn't address that weaker brother first. He addresses the knowledgeable brother and he deals with his sin first. And he takes him into a gospel lesson. He says, you're denying the gospel by the way you're living. The stronger brother's theology was correct, but his heart was wrong. And so what he says to the stronger brother, you notice the first thing he says to him, very beginning of the chapter, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Your weaker brother might be issuing with sins of idolatry, but you're wrestling with pride. Humble yourself and be a servant to your brother. He says in verse 1, this knowledge that you claim, this knowledge that this correct theology that you have, this biblical understanding you have, it puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. You see what he's saying there? Something that if you've been with the Lord very long, you know this is true, that the more you study the scriptures and the more you study theology, if you're really mature, if you really have the spirit of God working you, studying God's word more only causes you to see how little you know in light of all the deep and profound truth that God has for us. Studying scripture should make you more humble. It should not make you a know-it-all who goes around and tells other people how to live their lives. It should make you humble before God, to realize that the more that he teaches you, the so much more you're able to see that you don't know. I love the Phillips, J.B. Phillips translation. It's actually a paraphrase that J.B. Phillips did of the New Testament. The way he translates the beginning of this verse, listen carefully to how he translates it. 
While knowledge may make a man look big, it's only love that can make him grow to his full stature. While knowledge may make a man look big, it's only love that can make him grow to his full stature. Gordon Fee in his commentary says, the basis of Christian conduct is love, not knowledge. Think about that. We were saved not to become knowledgeable in the scriptures. We were saved so that we might reach our full purpose in life, which is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the purpose of our salvation. Knowledge, don't get me wrong. We're in the PCA after all. Knowledge is great. Solid biblical doctrine is fantastic. But it's a means to the end, not the end. And sometimes we forget that in our circles. The goal is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And yes, the more you know God's word and the better your theology, the better equipped you will be to fulfill the purpose for which you were saved. In verse 3, Paul says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. That, that phrase, known by God, that's a New Testament phrase that is used for election. To be known by God is to be chosen by God before the foundation of the world. That's what that phrase refers to. And so you understand, Paul's not saying you become chosen by God by loving God and loving others. That's not what he's saying. He's saying your election, your being chosen by God before the foundation of the world is given evidence by the way you love God. God and the way you love others. In 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to get to that in a number of weeks. In 1 Corinthians 13, listen carefully. You know this this chapter very well. I know you do. Listen carefully to the wording. Paul says, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I gain nothing. He goes on to say, love is not arrogant. And then he says, as for knowledge, it will pass away. And then he concludes that great chapter by saying, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. That's exactly what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians 8. Knowledge is fantastic. Knowing God's word is so important to your life. Growing in biblical doctrine is so important to your growth as a disciple. But the purpose of it all is that you learn to love God and love others. We in Reformed churches pat ourselves on the back all the time for being more knowledgeable and being more sound in our theology than the other denominations out there. I'm afraid too often we would be the one addressed in 1 Corinthians 8 that says, you know what, your knowledge is great, your doctrine's great, your heart is all wrong. We should be known primarily for the way that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we should be known for, not our doctrine. Not our biblical knowledge. And then he goes on to make his real point in verse 9. We need to lay down our rights for our brother. We need to give up our freedoms for the sake of our brothers. He says, take care that this right of yours, this right to, to eat the meat that's been offered to idols in the past, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In verse 13 he says, therefore if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul was willing to give up sirloin steak 
for his brothers in the church. He was willing to give up any freedom or right if that's what it took to truly love his brother or sister in Christ. You know, Christ taught us to take up our cross and follow him. We quote that all the time, but you understand, to take up your cross and follow Christ means to give up your rights the way he gave up his rights for the sake of others. That's what we're called to. It's a call of service. It's a call of self-denial. It's not a call to fight for your rights and to fight for your freedoms. In Galatians 5, verse 13, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You know the, the, the phrase that really caught my attention as I was studying this passage this week? left a lasting impact on me, and I never really noticed it before. It's a phrase in verse 11 where he refers to the weaker brother as the brother for whom Christ died. What if we really looked at each other that way all the time? Did you ever play that game, Heads Up, where you take a card with some famous person's name, historical or celebrity name, and you don't see it, but you hold it up to your forehead, and the other person is supposed to give you clues so you can figure out what the name is on the card. I thought of that game this week as I thought about that phrase. You know, if there, if there is any right tattoo, any right use of tattooing, I'm not sure there is, but if there is one, a right use of tattooing, I would be in favor of having that phrase, the one for whom Christ died, tattooed on the head of every believer. Not for our own sake, but for our brothers and sisters' sake. What if every time you looked at a brother or sister in Christ, that's what you saw written across the forehead? The one for whom Christ died. Do you think that'd make a difference in how you treat them? Do you think it'd make a difference in how you, with gusto, drink that big mug of beer when they're struggling with whether it's right to drink alcohol or not? Do you think it'd make a difference in how you love them, accept them, and forgive them? Because that's really the Christian ethic. We are to love as Christ first loved us. We are to accept others as Christ has accepted us. We are to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. It's not about your rights. It's not about your freedoms. It's about loving God and loving your neighbor. You know that passage in Philippians chapter 2. Let me read it to you, and I'll close with this. So if, you know, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The one for whom Christ died is written on all your brothers and sisters in Christ. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for reveling in our freedoms in Christ. 
and forgetting that we have many around us who desperately need us to consider their interests first. Father, increase the love among us. May Oakwood Presbyterian Church, yes, be known for our serious study of the scriptures, our diligent attempts to apply scripture to every aspect of life. But much more than that, may we be known at Oakwood Presbyterian Church for loving as Christ loved, for accepting as Christ accepts, and forgiving as Christ forgives. We are unworthy, Lord. We desperately need your grace, and we need your Holy Spirit and your word to produce this in our midst. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.